Okay, so you're much more on the air. It's um, is that my gun? I think it must be. And uh, we're uh, it's fourth Wednesday of the month, and um, it's also um, Anzac Day. We say that very softly. <laughs> and in the studio, there's uh, Meg Kimber over there, pressing buttons. Things. How are you? Good. Eugenia Zubchenko's over there. Hello. Hello, I'm Kevin Healy at East City Limits. And we've got a couple of guests today. Um, you've teed one up, uh, Meg, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Nick Rose from the uh, Australian Food Network. Yep. Coming to talk to us about urban agriculture, backyard farming, reclaiming our food security in the city. So, yeah. Fascinating. Mm. Mm. <laughs> See what he has to say. This is an area I'm sure you two can carry the can today. That's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pressure, Kevin. <laughs> no, no, not a lot I of printed pressure. off some questions. So, <laughs> yeah. You know. yeah, I feel like this is maybe our most prepared interview for a while, potentially. Yeah. You want to hear my first bad joke of the day? Yeah, can't sort wait. of thing. Sort of thing you think of riding across from Brunswick to here on a Wednesday morning. Yeah, when there's C- no one on the street. Comes into your head. Yeah, yep. I thought having a rose on Anzac Day really isn't appropriate, but maybe his grandkids call him Poppy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a. That's not as bad as I a, thought it was going to be. So topical. Really? <laughs> right. Okay. And he might be old enough, of course, but never mind. That's Who just knows? why I spoil a good joke or a bad joke for that yeah. one. Um, well, we yeah. know what our first question is going to be then. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> let's not, let's not do it. Do it. <laughs> um, but being Anzac Day, also, we thought we would do something. The Breggy Show, in fact, had a very good Anzac Day program this morning, and people heard it on. Um, including um, they had um, Reynolds on at the end. What's his first name? I have forgotten his first name. The, the historian. Oh. Um, but anyway, he... Um, Henry Reynolds. Henry Reynolds. Yeah. He, he came on talking about the need for yeah. a... Uh, to, well, the indigenous wars the, to be to be accepted. Mm. The frontier wars, as they call them. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, of course, the memorial um, and Nelson, who runs it, uh, don't want to do anything about that. But anyway, that's uh, that's that. But we are going to have Bob Skates on in the last ten minutes or quarter of an hour of the show. He was he was a draft resistor back in the Vietnam War days, and uh, he did. In fact, it's appropriate today because he was arrested on Anzac Day uh, for draft resistance. Really? He'd, he'd been underground, and from Anzac Day to December that year, nineteen seventy-two, when Whitlam won the election on December the second, Labor won the election. He was released on the Wednesday after that. Um, so <laughs> he did eight months in Pedridge of a, I think it was a two-year sentence they got mm. in those days. For refusing to fight for their country. Wow. So, uh, that will be interesting. Yeah, mm. so we'll let you uh, loose on that because it's, it's a history I lived through, but it's a history you probably didn't, you, mm. you clearly didn't live through, and we don't, we'll see it in that. Oh, tea time, of course. I'm pouring tea. You want a cup of tea? You mentioned you had coffee. Didn't you? Yeah, I'd love a cup oh, of tea. You're into everything today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You <laughs> said you were feeling beverages. great. <laughs> yeah, you said you were feeling great, so there you are. <laughs> Now, Meg, you said you had to. No, you don't want to. Ooh. I have a. Well, I have a cup already. I had to start earlier. Right. You had to start drinking the green tea so before rejecting. you arrived. Well, this is green yeah. tea this morning. It's an interesting Chinese mm. one that comes in little pellets. And um, it's really. Yes, it's really. Very tasty. Yeah. So I thought we'd kick off again with. We'll, look, we'll kick off with our usual um, pick up the headlines in the Herald Sun this week that we, we ought to comment on mm. for, their, for their perspicacity. Uh, and the first one is. <laughs> Um, I was in actually yesterday back on the world page and right across the top, House of Horror, four die in waffle restaurant shooting. A nearly naked gunman wearing only a green jacket and brandishing an assault rifle stormed, etc. And four people were killed, which is terrible. But uh, the page has all these other stories. Where was about, this, Kevin? This is in uh, America, of course, Nashville, right. Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and... Um, 
they saw even France about Macron and Libya, um, weapons optimism tempered in the US, a photo of Kim, Kim Jong-un, and there's a Scotland story about a stone-cold winter or something. Uh, and then there's a little story down the side. Under House of Horror, Four Die and Waffle, there's Afghanistan. Bomber kills at least 57. Oh. Um, now, the 57 obviously don't count because they're Afghans compared mm-hmm. to the four Americans who died. In fact, the four Americans are named, but the Afghans are just anonymous. There's no mention mm. of names, etc. So. Yeah, thought I'd just mention that as a little fact. And uh, the day we, I think it was the day before. I mean, they they, pray, they they keep screaming as we know about law and order and judges giving two you know two lenient sentences that they carry on day after day. Uh, the government last year fell for it and said, "Oh, we'll uh, we're going to set up a body to uh, and have have members of the community involved with judges in in, in sentencing." and assessing sentencing, and um, the Herald Sun goes with all that. But the, the judges themselves have said, look, we're not going to be a part of it. You know, and quite correctly, I think, mm. we're supposed to have a separation of powers, although that's a bit of a joke because mm. if judges rule something against government, government goes back the next day and changes the law. But that aside, <laughs> um, we're supposed to have separation of powers. But the, the judges have said no, so now, again, it's an attack on the Labor government after all that. Again, um, <laughs> snub plan to give Victorians laughed out of court and a photo of the pejorative Dan and Pakula, the Attorney General, etc. So, yet another attack. And I've noticed over recent days, as they have the front page attacks on the Labor government all the time, and they'll certainly be supporting them thoroughly right up to the election, of course. Sure. Um, the, the the bank inquiry it gets stories on the left hand page mostly, and uh, and not big headlines. Headlines you wouldn't know it was about the bank ripping off until you read into the story itself, which interesting. I find mm. sort of interesting. Yeah, mm. but back to Anzac Day, and I you mm. know I think, and I think we we don't we're not attacking Anzac Day because it you know because it because it's so overplayed and so jingoistic, but certainly for those we're not attacking the the cannon fodder, the young working-class cannon fodder who died in those wars because mm-hmm. they, you know, they, they were victims themselves of the people uh, and um, the people who sent them there. And, in fact, it's often said that if the people who de- declare war went themselves and led like the kings used to do, we'd probably mm-hmm. have a lot less wars. I mean, I think we'd probably have none. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you sent John Howard and co. had to go off and lead the troops. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been this legacy ad running for a week, we will do more than remember, etc., and it's accompanied by a photo of three little kids, one with an Air Force, one with a Navy, one with an Army, the slouch hat, little mm. kids. Remember when uh, the anti-communist B.A. Santa Maria, um, he used to always complain, and, and people still complain, about how communists brainwash dear little children. Mm. And I'm wondering what bit mm. of kids being put in these Army things and told how wonderful it is to go and kill people and our values were honed on a military disaster created by Winston Churchill. Um, which bit of that is not brainwashing? Can anyone mm. tell me? Yeah. Mm. It's, anyway. yeah. As I was writing here this morning, I was thinking of that um, anti-World War One poem by Wilfred Owen. Do you guys know it? It's mm-hmm. called Dulce Decorum e yeah. Propatre Mori. It's got this great line at the end about yeah how, how the um, politicians... Um, yeah, in, indoctrinate children basically with these slogans to to make them think yeah, that it's, yeah. they're going to get some elusive glory by going to war. And it was Rudyard Kipling, wasn't it, when he lost his son, who wrote a poem about you know, about why you died, you know, why you died because those who sent you had lied or whatever. Mm, that's it. Um, yeah. And of course, there's the wonderful um, Eric Bogle song um, about private, well, private, well, private, whatever his name is, private thing. Oh, do, um, do you know uh-huh. why these? 
while they died, it's the same thing. Um, a similar song about, mm. you know, mm. well, how do you do, Private William McBride? That's it. Well, how do you do, Private William McBride, to all those who lie here know why they died? Mm. Uh, yeah. And there was a story yesterday, again, promoting the whole thing, this wonderful cream of Australian youth soldier who was a sniper in Afghanistan, um, and he's home now with his family, and it's wonderful. He's got a dear little child, and he appreciates family life, and he's going to enjoy Anzac Day with his family. And I thought, I wonder how many people over there whom he sniped mm. uh, have no longer got kids or mothers or fathers mm. or families, thanks to him. Um, mm. Just a small thought. We're having a cheery little show here this morning, <laughs> <laughs> keeping it up. <laughs> I'm going to have another sip of tea. Yeah, I'm going to take... mm. Anyway, it's a nice tea, though, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for agreeing with me. That was good. Um, right, anyone else with anything to say, by the way, at this point? I'm just raving on. Oh, go for it. I've, I've, got a, I've got a story about the oldest person in the world dying, but it's oh, also yeah. not exactly cheering. <laughs> no, it, it, it sort of is, though, because you think, you always think the oldest person in the Someone world. Someone else go. Whenever they die, yeah, that's right. Whoever's, whoever's running second thinks, thank God, yeah, this is wonderful. Yeah, I know. I'm winning at something. How old were they? Uh, she was 117. Yeah. But yeah, it, wow. They definitely portray it as a race in this little snippet I read in The Age. Yeah. Um, so she, she, she had the honour of being the oldest person in the world for seven months. Mm. Uh, and now she's passed it on to another woman, also Japanese, who is now the oldest person in the world at 116. Mm. There you who, are. Who goes around the world mm. checking mm. everybody's mm. driver's licences? Well, they like mentioned somewhere are. that the Guinness Book of Records keep these things as well, so maybe mm. they do the research. I don't Must know. be having that job. Huge undertaking. In, yeah. yeah. You're going to have to ask everyone. Exactly. <laughs> Every single person in the How world. How old are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many societies that have no record, of course. So yeah, exactly. They, yeah. yeah. They, and a lot of those societies where people do live much longer, they have no record, so. Mm. Who knows? Uh, but this is good news on the on the war front. Uh, a prototype of Australia's newest fighting machine has been deployed deployed in Afghanistan to run it through its paces in a quote operational environment. Now, I wasn't aware we were actually at war with Afghanistan, but we've sent something over mm. there to have an operational environment to mm. uh, test this new weapon we got. It's a nice way of looking at a country, an yeah. operational environment. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of weapons against the people, Kelly O'Dwyer, the um, minister for something to do with money, um, she, um, of course, came out last weekend, and uh, well, I think we mentioned last week, she's taking all the credit. I mean, she's, she turns up in bandages and cuts and bruises from being dragged and screaming to the Royal Commission mm. and then takes full credit for it. <laughs> um, and uh, I thought the one thing she said, that the one quote she said I thought was absolutely true, um, she She's about the Royal Commission. She said the government's record speaks for itself. And I thought, well, it does. Yeah. <laughs> she got that one right. She didn't want to specify what the record was. No, no, but anyway, she. So good on you, Kelly, for telling the truth there. Mm. Um, and of course, she says we, we can't just exclude the banks from tax cuts because that would be a, a morality tax. We don't want morality taxes. Um, I don't want any morals or ethics getting mixed up in politics. Oh, no, we don't want a morality tax. I mean, let's get a little bit real here, she said. Well, I thought, again, she was fairly... The little bit of that was, again, um, I thought, fairly appropriate. And, and a little bit real, but let's not get carried away with reality. <laughs> no, no, that's right. So that's that's our Kelly for the day. And, um, and 
again, our old mate um, Jennifer Westacott from the Business Council of Australia, she came out supporting Kelly on the whole thing that morality tax would be wrong, etc. Um, and she said a tax system designed around a popularity uh, contest would not satisfy the economy-wide challenges faced by Australia. No one should underestimate the unpopular consequences of an underperforming economy such as creeping unemployment and stagnant wage growth. Now, that's very much what we've got. Mm. Um, but she... Um, she said the company tax debate should be about our global competitiveness, ensuring Australia is in the race and the straight line, now this is the bit we get, the straight line between investment productivity and wages, not about reward and punishment. Now, uh, I think the straight line between investment and wages is a little unproven. Uh, <laughs> in fact, and indeed recently we've quoted them, they, they keep talking about it would eventually lead to or may lead at it all. It's all... It's all theoretical. Uh, couched in, uh, in possibilities. Yeah. Um, on which, though, um, an Egyptian bloke um, who worked for a, a pharmacy mob in Sydney called Save and Deliver um, was, was underpaid the value of 93 weeks' wages over four years. Oh, my gosh. Um, he, um, and when he asked for a raise, he was threatened with the sack. Uh, he, he's, he said he gave evidence that he often worked more than 40 hours a week without taking breaks for morning tea, lunch or afternoon tea. Wow. He usually ate his lunch while making deliveries. He attended work when he was sick because he was never paid for days he didn't work. Mm. Gave evidence he mostly worked 10 to 12 hours a day. Mm. He was paid flat hourly rates of between 12 and 14 but entitled to between 16 and 43 an hour depending on his shifts. He eventually started working, etc. His duties included preparing methadone doses for about 30 customers, delivering medications to homes, transferring supplies between pharmacies in Liverpool and Mount Druitt and various duties, etc., etc., etc. And for that, the, um, the pharmacists, there were three of them, uh, they sound like they might all be related, but anyway, they were each fined $15,000. It um, seems to me to be absolutely minimal when you consider that if a union takes mm. action over safety issues, it might get fined millions. Mm. Uh, 15000 each for underpaying a bloke 93 weeks' wages. And they pa- had to pay him, obviously, did they? Or? They had to pay the back pay, yeah. yeah. But Did's other he... cases were found in the same yeah. group of companies as well. Yeah, so it's pretty uh, pretty ordinary, I would have thought. Pretty bad it, form. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And on that, an interesting quote by, um, by again, the much maligned uh, State Secretary of the um, CFMEU, John Setka, last week. Um, the Herald Sun, they, they do this with people they don't like. They always pick the most demonic photos. Whenever they have a photo of him, he looks absolutely demonic. And Can I have a look a, at the photo? He's a, I haven't got it here. Oh, that's okay. not here, but this oh. is. Uh, but that's what they do. They used to do it here with Bill Hartley. It was 3CR years ago. Bill was secretly ALP when oh, bad yeah. days when it was left wing and terrible. Oh, yeah. But they had the most awful demonic photo of Bill. He always looked terrible. <laughs> um, but um, John John Setka had this wonderful quote. He's, he suggests he's saying that Shorten should um, restore workers' rights in the country and overhaul the unfair work commission. Um, and he says the way laws are structured, workers are getting screwed. Now that's that shows what a bad person he is. <gasps> yes, that's he used right. a yes. rude yes, word. Yes, he used. That's right. <laughs> he used workers. Um, <laughs> and he said, if you're a worker at the moment, and this is the bit I like about his quote. If you're a worker at the moment and you think your employer is being unjust and ripping you off, if you walk off your job, you're a criminal. If they say by me withdrawing my labour, I can go to jail. 
that makes me a slave. Oh, mm. nice. Which yeah. is not a bad quote, is it? Mm. In the Herald Sun, they printed it. No, that. it was in the Financial Review. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they wouldn't print it. They turn that on him in some way and say, this shows how bad he is. Mm. Yeah. Terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> Slave but, comment uh, shock. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Outrage. <laughs> Employers attacked. <laughs> yeah, that'd be it. And just to finish on that, and then we'll go to the first guest, um... They've also found um, the industry fund services, which is one of the one of the obviously industry funds. Um, they found thirty four thousand employees, and probably only scraped the surface last year, uh, where bosses hadn't paid their super to them, hadn't put their super in, mm. and it's becoming a major problem where you know workers are and bosses are taking it out of there, taking it out and say putting it on the pay slip, but they're not actually putting it in the super fund. Yeah, and I've many heard about them, this. Yeah, many of them are using them to using it virtually as a loan to keep the company going, etc. Um, and in fact, a woman chief executive of that fund services, Kath Botel, she said pay slips are not always accurate. Quite often, they will show that super has been paid, but that doesn't mean it's been submitted to the super fund. They borrow from the workforce to prop up the cash flow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So again, workers are being ripped off all over the place. But, but if you read certain huge. papers, yeah, you'd think it was the like... total reverse. Uh, I don't understand that at all. And now I'm wondering if there's jobs like hospitality jobs and stuff that have said I've been paid super. I haven't checked. Yeah. And um, Who checks? Yeah, yeah, nobody checks that. (laughs) But you can't give someone a pay slip saying you've paid super and not pay super. That is... Well, you can obviously. That's the you like, can, and that's the problem. Yeah, you know, the well, law the law needs to cover that somehow. So there's no yeah. there's no body that oversees that or anything. Well, there way. is. I guess there is ultimately, but 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 you've got to check your you, super. You've got to, Someone's got to go back and check. Mm. Yeah. And the super fund has to do it, or the fair work ombudsman, mm. or or someone has to mm. go back and uh, and check it out. Anyway, so mm. it's pretty much all right. We'll have a break, have a song, and then we'll have Nick Rose on the line from the Australian Food Network. That was Blue King Brown with Never Fade Away. We've got Nick Rose on the line. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Great to be with you, Mick. Um, so I've also got Kevin and Eugenia in the studio today. Um, we'll all be asking you about um, Sustain, the Australian Food Network. We thought we'd start by just asking you, can you tell us a little bit about Sustain and what it is and how it got started? Sure. Uh, so Sustain is a not-for-profit organisation. We're a, a registered charity, a health promotion charity, and we work for the transition to a food system that supports flourishing communities, individuals and ecosystems. Uh, we do a, we realise that mission through a number of different ways, through uh, transformative events, through major projects, through research uh, and consultancy and network building and advocacy. And we were formed in January 2016, uh, but the history actually goes back a little bit longer. There was an organisation called the Food Alliance at Deakin University that uh, existed uh, from about 2009 that also had a... Uh, a mandate to try to bring uh, different organisations and people across the food system in Victoria together to work for a, a healthier food system. So we emerged out of the out of the work of the Food Alliance in 2015-16. Mm. And that was in response to what kind of um, social and community situations that were happening in terms of food security? In if we go back to the Food Alliance, that mm. was actually work that was done um, ten years or more now, looking at the issue of, as you just said, of, of food security, food insecurity, uh, people. 
people on fixed and low incomes across the state who were uh, really struggling to put food on the table. And at that time, the Victorian government had been working with a number of local councils where this uh, was seen to be a, a, a major issue and building capacity inside those local governments to try and understand the situation better and put some programs in place to address it. And uh, that was a, a five-year funded uh, effort, and at the end of that time they did an evaluation and realised that while a lot of capacity had been built inside the local governments, they were not necessarily sharing that knowledge and experience and working together, so mm-hmm. they thought there was a need for a a kind of like a coordinating network type organisation. And there's some examples overseas, particularly uh, Sustain in the United Kingdom, which is a, a national organisation that actually um, you know, facilitates a, a dialogue um, of people across the food system, farmers and uh, different people in local government, people working in health and education, schools, community gardeners, um, uh, businesses, uh, all working together to understand the food system better, to understand its key challenges and, uh, yeah, develop ideas and ways in which it it can be strengthened and improved. So I guess in the Australian context, um, you know, there's some really critical challenges that we're facing in the food system Mm. Um, in the context of urban agriculture um, and food. A really big one is the the sprawl dynamic uh, in Melbourne, um, as you'll be aware and your listeners will be aware, you know, we're just actually just in the news the last couple of days, we're the fastest growing city in the country and a lot of that growth uh, happens um, out from the city centre in places like Werribee and Cranbourne and Casey and Cardinia because um, uh, that's where land is affordable, where housing is affordable, so that's where people are going and new suburbs are being built, but they're being built on some of our best soil our best land, which uh, in previous decades was used for you know diverse market garden production, so um, that's a you know that, that's a kind of like a, a city-wide food security issue, or even a, a national food security issue um, potentially. Mm. Um, so that's a, that's a really critical issue. Another one is um, corporate power and concentration in the food system, particularly the, the supermarkets and the mm-hmm. the power they exercise through the food system, the squeeze that puts on our farmers, uh, the fact that you know, 70% of Australian farmers can't actually make a living from the land mm. and are dependent on off-farm income. Mm. Um, average age of farmers, you know, reaching 60 or above, young people not wanting to go into agriculture, not being supported to go into agriculture. Um, so, you know, the question is, who's going to be growing our food if half our farmers are over 70 and mm. are going to retire very soon? You know, who's going to actually do the work and the labour of producing the food is another big one. Mm. And a really, a third one that's pretty major is is diet and what kind of food we're actually eating and, um, you know, how so much of it is not actually making us well, helping our bodies. Mm. Um, in, in Cardinia, uh, where we've got a major project with the council there, there are six fast food outlets for every healthy food outlet and, you know, suburbs are just, you know, saturated with... Uh, with fast food franchises and mm. kids and families are pummeled with advertising to, you know, spend their money in these places and, mm. and because there's not enough employment out in the outer suburbs, you know, the majority of people get in their cars and drive up the freeway to come to town to go to work, so come home tired and not motivated to cook and that kind of, you know, flows into a loss of knowledge about cooking and, and food prep and, um, you know, it's a kind of like a reinforcing spiral that... Uh, 
mm. not a really healthy one. So those are yeah, some really critical issues. And then, of course, overlaying all that is the, the bigger environmental ones about you know climate change and mm. loss of biodiversity, what we, you know, um, land use change, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, this, if we're, you know, the bigger conversation about sustainability this century and beyond, um, lots of it comes back to the food system and, mm. um, you know, how we're using land, what kind of food we're producing. Um, these are really big questions, important questions that we need to be exploring, which is what we're about. I suppose the answer to those things, I'm of a generation, Nick, that I was raised down the Bayside way and I just took up on my bike and you'd ride over the back of Maraba and they were all market gardens mm. in those days. Right. Um, now, how do we get over that problem that we're losing all that land? How do, what is the answer to that problem? Or is that, or is that the answer you're trying to find? Um, yeah, well, look, uh, that's, that's certainly one of the, the key issues that, that we, and, we and others are exploring um, uh, we, we recently held a, a, a national forum on this, on this and other issues, the second national urban agriculture forum at William Angus Institute in February this year, uh, where our international keynote speaker was a lady called Dr. Lenore Newman from the Fraser Valley, Valley University in British Columbia. Mm. And there they have found the answer to the problem of, of urban sprawl, which, uh, which they found in 1972, a very visionary um, legislative action by the then provincial government to create something called the Agricultural Land Reserve, the ALR, mm. and that was essentially putting a you know a hard legislative protection on fifty percent of the uh, the land of the Lower Mainland of British Columbia. Um, uh, so. Uh, a large amount of agricultural land um, protected and, and kind of taken out of the real estate market as regards um, subdivisions for for residential and commercial development, and the result of that is a you know a thriving farm uh, and agritourism and uh, culinary scene that uh, in 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 Lenore's own municipality of Abbotsford, mm. um, 45 minutes east of Vancouver, 389 square kilometres. Um, that that uh, supports nearly 1,300 farms that generate a total of $700 million, directly employs 7,000 people, indirectly another 12,000. Um, and they're profitable. They're returning about $20,000 per acre of, of farmland. So, you know, that's a world-leading example of what actually can be done about it. Um, in Melbourne, as you pointed out, you know, we've lost a lot of the, the land close to the city, but... Um, you know, we still have got municipalities a bit further out where there's, you know, really fertile soil and a solid farming base and, and you know, we could we could look to what they've done in British Columbia and, and uh go down that path if we if we choose to. Mm. And Nick, um what are the advantages of having the agricultural land as close as possible to the city? There's lots of there's lots of advantages. Um uh one is that that's in, in in our context in Australia. That's some of where, where some of our best soil is. Um, you know, cities were founded where they are in Australia because they've got access to you know good access to water mm-hmm. and good soil, which is not the case in you know large parts of the country. Um, so that's a, a very practical uh, reason. Um, also, it, uh, it it builds what we call food literacy, um, which is you know an understanding of where food comes from and the critical role it plays in our lives. So, if you've got you know working, productive, successful market gardens um, close to the city centre, 
you can do things like link them up with local schools and uh, you know have have kids going out there and and uh, learning about you know the land and what it is to be a farmer and where the food comes from um, they also uh, support a lot of employment as examples are just given from uh, British Columbia Columbia show um, lots of uh, lots of opportunities for employment and and uh, value adding um, agritourism so that's uh, that's an important issue, as I mentioned, for, for municipalities like Cardinia uh, in Melbourne. Um, and I think it's uh, moving for sort of further in, and you know, there's a kind of like a flow. I think from the peri-urban, the market garden, um, coming closer into the city, and talking about things like you know community gardens, which obviously we have lots of in Melbourne, but also um, you know more intensive commercial scale. Uh, urban farming, which happens in lots of places in North America, and which we'd like to see happen in Melbourne, where you've got, uh, you know, underutilised uh, or uh, vacant um, blocks of land in the city. Mm. And I'm sure we've all seen them. You know, typically here they are behind sort of cyclone fences, growing weeds out of concrete. Yeah. Um, you know, that are going to be developed, but may not be developed for a year or two years or more. So there's no reason why you know those those blocks can't be used for for urban farming um, if we've got the infrastructure and you know funding and uh, market networks in place uh, we can start building a you know skilled and experienced cohort of um, you know uh, young people who can go and uh, be supported to go and work that land and grow food and, and make an income from it and you know if they really like doing that then. Uh, if we've got, you know, a, a similarly supported and protected network of market gardens and out in the fringe, um, and they want to get into it more longer term, they could, you know, go out and mm. um, get into land sharing or maybe acquire some of their own land mm. further down the track. That's such a good vision, and um, it really, uh, if I, kind of, my eyes are popping out of my head when you were talking before about Lenore Newman and speaking about the work in British Columbia to actually protect tracts of land for agricultural reasons and made me think about how um, agricultural land is is seen certainly sort of in the inner city perhaps like a like a market garden is a kind of a luxury or something that's a little bit uh, privileged or elite when really like having access to affordable food which is nutritious and um, grown with care and consideration shouldn't be considered something that's um something for just, you know, people who are in a really good financial position or in a really good suburb? Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, my, my background is law. Mm. I was a, a lawyer um, many years ago. And, yeah, my, my a lot of my PhD research was looking at um, human rights and particularly the, the human rights to, um, you know, safe, culturally appropriate and adequate and nutritious food. Mm. And that's, a, you know, that's enshrined in... Um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International mm. Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and Australia is a signatory to that document and has ratified it mm. and so all our governments at all levels are bound to uh, you know, to implement that um, that basic human right to adequate food for all our people, you know, regardless of their life circumstances mm. and um, I think it's a bit of a, you know, a, 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 a problem and a criticism of the, the food movement in some ways that uh, um, you know, the, the idea of the foodie is, you know, somebody knows about their food and um, can access it at, at nice, um, uh, you know, grocery stores or, or markets or whatever. But it, it is, you know, I guess the perception is that it's, it's kind of an, a, mm. an elite um, 
thing, but it shouldn't be. I mean, as you say, you know, access to, to good and nourishing food should be really the birthright of every person in this country. Mm. Um, and that's something that we're failing, you know, very badly on the, the stats from the people in the emergency food sector, food bank and, and Second Bite and others, are that, you know, they're just being swamped by demand and yeah. and more and more people are, um, you know, struggling to eat well. Mm. And it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's morally unacceptable and... Um, uh, yeah, it's it's something that we you know we really again we really need to talk about and and uh, start to address. I mean, it's a bigger you know that that issue of poverty is a bigger one than just the food system, and it's mm. not simply for for farmers to solve or urban agriculture to solve. It obviously impacts on things like cost of living and the real estate market and housing mm. and you know employment levels and all those kinds of things. So um, yeah, I'm also part of another network uh, that's looking at those. You know, bigger issues, which is the new economy network for Australia. There's a, a conference coming up in October where we're going to be discussing visions and um, initiatives to, you know, try and you know shift the conversation on a you know a, an economy that actually works for people rather than you know short-term profit interests of corporations. Mm-hmm. So there's an irony here too. too. Sorry, there's an irony here too, Nick, isn't there? That um, people who often are, are, are in you know the lower socioeconomic areas tend to buy more processed food, etc., for which they pay heaps more money per kilo than food that's much healthier for them. Yeah, uh, um, certainly uh, the, the, the trend in food purchasing is towards, as you say, processed food and um, pre-prepared food, and and yes, it's um, it can certainly be. More expensive, although you know, arguably, um, uh, you know, food that you get in a, a fast food restaurant is is still you know pretty pretty cheap, I guess. Um, uh, and I guess, uh, yeah, it's also it's also a question of food knowledge, I suppose, and, and knowing, um, you know, if you've got the skills and knowledge and confidence to to be able to cook things like I don't know, dal lentils, um, soups, all those kinds of things. You mm. can do it, you know, you, you certainly can mm. do it um, economically mm. and you can, you know, make your meals for a week. So, um, yeah, you, 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 make a good, you make a good point. Um, and I think this is where it comes back to what I was saying about, you know, food, food literacy is really important as well. These are essential life skills that uh, um, we feel it's really important that uh, are integrated in the curriculum, you know, from primary, you know, right through to secondary schools and, yeah, we're actually in conversation with Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation and, and a number of schools about exactly this. And one encouraging thing is that the uh, Department of Education in Victoria a couple of years ago um, actually broadened out substantially the, the food tech subject at VCE level uh, to become a, a food studies uh, curriculum that, mm. that really has a, a good solid look at a, a lot of issues from paddock to plate across the food system. That's so, great. That yeah, so that, that is mm. good. Because if young people are interested in farming, there's, there's um, you know, so many challenges in that field. It's not least what you mentioned before about that farmers um, struggle to make a living from farming, uh, which is crazy that farmers are struggling to make a living. People are struggling as food buyers are struggling to afford to buy food so something's gone really mm. weirdly strange in that system I, I think <laughs> yeah yeah that's um that that's that's right and I think um yeah I think my my years of work and research analysis have kind of led me to the conclusion that um 
you know, the food system should be, as you just described it, you know, it should be to enable the food producers, the farmers and the food workers to, you know, make a dignified living and to look after the land and ecosystems well and make sure that they leave them there for, you know, future generations to to, to work and, mm. and to feed ourselves and that, you know, people in cities and towns who aren't farmers can access good food at all times and, and we're not doing either well. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of the reason for that is the priorities of the food system you know, as with the economy more broadly, has just really come, become very focused on short-term, you know, short-term profit um, and and corporate interests, and that's that's the shift that we need. You know, we need to, um, yeah, we need to reorient it and talk about, you know, what really are the priorities of the food system, what are our values, and I think, you know, it needs to be a values-driven conversation, and the values have to be ecological sustainability and resilience, and human health and well-being and flourishing, and if we make those our compass, our, our guiding focus, then, you know, hopefully we can we can get to where we need to be. Mm, fantastic. We have time for one last question, and um, we wanted to ask you about the new project that you have starting up, the Alfington Community Food Hub. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really exciting, and, yeah, we're, we're really delighted to have uh, got the confidence of the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, which is uh, one of the major supporters of this kind of work in, in Melbourne, in uh, yeah, two years funding essentially to establish a, a new startup social enterprise that's going to be the Alfington Community Food Hub. Um, this will be at the southern end of the Darabin Parklands in the suburb of uh, Alfington in the city of Darabin. Mm. And it's a partnership with Melbourne Farmers Markets, which have just moved there from Collingwood uh, Children's Farm. So, yeah, on, on about 3,500 square metres, there'll be a weekly farmers market every Sunday. Um, there'll be a commercial kitchen to support micro-business incubation and evaluating and catering and food processing. Mm. There'll be about 500 square metres of urban agriculture, uh, food growing and hopefully a, um, a seedling nursery. Um, there'll be storage, cool room storage and um, ways in which farmers can bring larger volumes of produce in and we've got you know, going to employ a team of people to um, build connections with local restaurants and cafes and institutions to, you know, to market and distribute that produce and uh, create, you know, larger markets for our, uh, our local farmers. And we'll be running events and workshops there as well. So it's, <clears throat> yeah, Food Hub is, uh, is this idea of a kind of like a multifunctional, multi-layered, multi-stakeholder collaborative um, enterprise where, yeah, lots of you know, lots of people can come together and, I guess, uh, prototype or prefigure a, you know, a, a better type of way of uh, uh, buying and selling and relating to food and building community around that. So, yeah, we're pretty excited about it. It's going to be starting next month. We're just, um, yeah, literally going to be putting our team together in the next few weeks and mm. uh, yeah, kicking it off in the second half of May, early June. So, that yeah, we're really great. excited. People can look out for that and I suppose they can probably have a look online and, and check it out. Um, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Nick Rose from Sustain. It's a pleasure. Really nice to be with you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah. Okay, we'll take a break, come back, and we're going to now talk to Bob. Just on that, though, it, it's it, one of the great difficulties, of course, is is how do you convince governments to, to stop allowing developers to keep encroaching on those well, areas yeah, he's talking which about. which is it. why it's fascinating that in British Columbia yeah, they yeah, made they, that into they legislated, law. Yeah. I just, that That's blew so my mind. Fascinating, yeah. yeah, And it just adds another layer to that argument. Like, there's so many reasons for curtailing sprawl. Mm. And, they, and Dr. Nick Rose has just told us another whole list of additional reasons to do yeah. with food security. Yep.
Alrighty. Okay, come back and have our Anzac Day little interview. Yeah. Okay, on the line, Bob Skates. Bob was a, a draft resistor way back in the Vietnam War days. He was underground. But on this day, Anzac Day 1972, he was arrested by the Commonwealth coppers uh, while driving to a meeting uh, with a getaway driver who drove into a dead end. Um, <laughs> who say, was the driver, Kevin? <laughs> not going to tell you. And... Um, and Bob then did eight months from Anzac Day to Wednesday after Whitlam won the election in December in Pentridge Jail. From our previous interview, he probably was looking after weeds coming out of Bluestone or something. Um, but Bob, um, I'll open up um, by just, and I'll leave, then throw you to the mercy of Eugenia and Meg. But um, Bob, since Howard, we've seen Anzac Day develop into this jingoistic circus we now have you know, every year. Um, your comment on that? Well, I think under Howard he moved it back to being a male, an older male type of thing. You look at his um, his own family background, and there was a, a great admiration of the uh, British military um, and you know Second World efforts. Mm. Uh, it was, um, yeah, I, th- I think today, if you look, and I've watched a bit of the TV coverage, that there is a, a move uh, towards you know recognising women and. Aboriginal people as well as just the, the males that were involved in the war. I mean, the nursing professions and the, the you know, the female support and so on. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there have been some, some good things happening. Uh, it certainly has got bigger. I mean, you see the big crowds of people now uh, that weren't there. When, I remember back in the 50s, I mean, the, the, the Boer War veterans were the ones that, that, that led the march. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so you're right. I mean, it's it's um it's getting back a bit. 1972 is to when I was uh, was first um escorted uh, from the Volkswagen Beetles, remember? <laughs> yeah. um, in the a, back of the, in the back of a police car. <laughs> it's a good yeah. point that you make about um you know Howard having this really particular kind of male like the whole thing about the male war hero and yeah. I think he like um it was during his time that it became something that was compulsory on the um school's curriculums for, for I mean I don't not sure what it was like before but yeah, and it became, what he, what he, what he yeah. did from his side of politics was very clever and that mm. he was probably able to link the you know groups like the boy scouts and girl guides and other groups uh, you know behind the, mm. the general and there wasn't any questioning of a war. I mean, at least uh, mm. Malcolm Turnbull today, you know, talked about Gallipoli being a defeat. I mean, back in the days when I went to school, I mean, we just assumed that outside always won. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always assumed that, you know, the red bits on the uh, mm. on the uh, the Atlas, mm. the pink Commonwealth, but we were the good guys. Mm. It's pretty straightforward. We were, we were where all heroes were. So how did you go from that to... Um being a draft resistor. Yep. Mm. Yeah, well, I got sentenced to 18 months in, um, in Coburg. And what was uh, it that um, made you decide not to? From, but, from but a childhood growing up, um, learning like that, and then to that point? What yeah, sort of my, my dad you? was a World War Two veteran, mm. and my grandfather was a World War One prisoner of war mm. in the British Army. Wow. So, yeah, we, had, we certainly had that background, but... Um, yeah, I opposed the Vietnam War at the time and still did do. Mm. And um, were, were the reasons for your opposition um, political or moral? or, or Yeah, what was your... A bit of both, probably more political than anything else. Yeah. 
I suppose you guys were involved in other kind of um, movements at the time around uh, things like the... Yeah, I mean, there were groups like Save Our Sons and mm-hmm. the Draft Resistance Movement. There's even a pirate radio station, which is probably the, the, wow. uh, the, the earlier version of community radio station yeah. that, you, you, that you work for. Yeah, and um, I know um, in Hobart I have been involved with Quaker community and I know that they were very strong supporters of draft resistors. What do you know of like what the life was like for people who had been drafted and then um, refused to accept that? How were they looked after? Yeah, we see that now. I mean, a number of my friends were, were people who either served in, in Vietnam or who've got family members or partners or whatever that served yeah. in Vietnam. Uh, and the, you know that post-traumatic service I don't, uh, mm. syndrome. Sorry, yep. um, I don't know when it was first recognised. I don't remember it until about ten years ago. But you now mm. see more and more um, recognition of people with mental health problems, and also problems from uh, the lovely um, Agent Orange that was mm. brought all over the country. Yeah. Can, can you just explain, Bob, for a generation that mightn't quite be yeah. aware about it, why you did oppose the Vietnam War? What, why did you think it was wrong? Uh, I didn't think we could win over there, and win was a in inverted commas. Mm. It just seemed to be a, a sacrifice of of life uh, for some type of insurance premium. Mm. Mm. Insurance about, but by by supporting the Americans in in what was exactly, an ideal war. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, well said. You should be turn up. <laughs> I answer my own question. <laughs> You're supposed to answer it. <laughs> 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 you might want to ask yourself some more questions. I've never done a radio, I've never done a radio interview before. You, you, and answering the question, ask the questions and then answer them. But you have. You're on a couple of years ago talking about the paucity of public transport in rural areas. Oh, that's right. Yes, I have. That was very good. Yeah. It's it, hasn't good got any, it hasn't got any better either in the Western <laughs> District. We're still looking for trains and, and buses. And, <laughs> So um, when you were younger and your, um, you said that your father uh, was in World War Two, and um, did you re- uh, march in the Anzac Day? How did your family yeah, celebrate yeah, Anzac Day? Yeah, yeah, Anzac Day was always a big day, I suppose, when you had a, a dad or a, an uncle that served in the military forces. Yeah. It seemed to be a, a pretty heavy drinking day, from what I remember, too, as well. Yeah, right. as mm. Marching, yeah. Um, must be not a lot of good quality wine. Because no. <laughs> <laughs> I never played two up. I, I, I gamble on most things that something I haven't taken up on. <laughs> yes, Anzac Day, nineteen seventy-two. Of course, wasn't a big drinking day for you, as it turned out. No, nor, no, nor, nor were the next eight months. <laughs> no, certainly the evening was, was very, very dry. Yeah. <laughs> so can you just paint a quick picture for us, Bob, of, of the events that led up to you being grabbed out of that car in 1972? Well, the getaway driver wasn't particularly fast. <laughs> <laughs> he had a beaten up Volkswagen, for God's sake, and he drove into a dead end. That was the, that was the killer bit. <laughs> and we, ne- we never know uh, the exact circumstances as to what happened but uh, yeah it was a long time ago yeah, it's it, interesting that because in fact we were going to a meeting which was being held about a block from where, where yes. they intercepted. But yeah. we're, at that point, we're on our way to pick up another draft resistor that I was keeping underground, um, and we'll never know whether the coppers had wind of something going on in that area or not. But mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But, uh, an informer somehow, perhaps. Well, who knows? But yeah. uh, Although one, I mean, in terms of our security, we thought we were so smart as 20-something-year-olds at the time. But uh, but in fact, of course, if they'd waited five minutes, they would have got every draft position in Melbourne. In the <laughs> <one hand>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe you weren't so smart, but the police probably weren't yeah. either. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Bob, what was it like to spend, um, was it eight months in prison? That seems to... Yeah, I've, I've probably had better holidays, but yeah. it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was interesting. I mean, the, uh, the blokes that I, I met were, were people who'd been locked up were, were pretty pretty honest, decent type of people. Sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, I do remember it. Finally, it's probably not the, quite the word, but it's, uh, it was quite emotional. We went back um, to Pentridge the other week, and it was just quite uh, quite a different um, mm. atmosphere going back. <laughs> well, that was the serenading Adele concert we went Adele, to. Indeed, indeed. We went to a few weeks ago. It was a wonderful yeah. concert there, and it was held in Pentridge. But that was because, again, in World War One, of course, um, it happened. Adela Pankhurst was uh, jailed yeah. for fighting um, conscription and uh, and people outside serenaded her. But that mm. uh, what we're seeing in this period of, um, of jingoism, as I say, we're getting anniversaries almost every battle, but the mm. two conscription referendums that were beaten um, were totally ignored by the media when, they, when their yes. centenaries occurred. Yes. Mm. Well, you've got yes, something in the background. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a cat and magpie I've got to keep separate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a different war, Bob. But, uh... <laughs> it's, it's continuous. Uh... <laughs> was your um, time uh, in uh, being uh, locked up for draft resistance, was it um, with other draft resistors that you were yes, in charge? Yeah. Yes. So it's they, only it, draft resistors that were in, in the... No, there, there, were, there were a number of people who, who okay. had... Uh, Enforced holidays, including uh, some from La Trobe University that had been involved politically there. Uh, okay, so people were being locked up for resisting the draft, but also for being politically active against the exactly, war. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we all got yeah. fine. I had fines over my head when it had, when Whitlam yeah. won, and yeah. you know, it was about yeah. I was, my charge was publishing a document liable to incite under the Federal Crimes mm-hmm. Act, which was handing out a leaflet saying, "Don't register for national service." I mean, yeah. uh, wow. you know, just the, the, wow. and of course, a number of women. The Bob mentioned save our sons. Well, the women from there were jailed um, at one stage during the struggle for yeah. the yeah. campaign. Yeah. Wow. Women went to fairly prison. Mm. Amazing. And when you so when Whitlam got elected, did you think, all right, that's it, I'm out, or were you surprised yes. when you, you know, yeah, you knew? Yeah, we, we we didn't know exactly the yep. timetable, but we we reckon we were yep. we, we've got a one way ticket back to Melbourne mm. Mm. because he campaigned on that <laughs> on that topic, the Sydney you? Road tram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, and yeah. how did that feel? It's good, good, good. <laughs> Yeah, uh, which you did, of course, um, picking up, well, we're almost out of time, Bob, but picking up Eugenia's point, you did get involved in prison reform issues too after you got out, didn't you, for a while? Yes, hard not to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what did that yeah. involve? Oh, basically visiting people, uh-huh. following up on issues, mm. a, few, uh, a few things, you know, holding hands and mm. singing Kumbaya. Oh, that sounds good, <laughs> yeah. Um well, thanks for yeah. joining us today. Okay. We're out of time. And, um, yeah. good great to talk, talk to you. Yeah. Good luck with the radio program. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, thanks, Bob. Yeah. Okay. Bob Skates there, who was a draft assistant. He, was, yeah. he, he always talks much more than that. I don't know why he was being so 
So uh, but Kelsey's <laughs> the day, but anyway, there he was. It's a it's a significant day for him. He's yeah, I guess so. overwhelmed with so. the memories. Overwhelmed, but mm. um, we'll be overwhelmed by John McPherson next week because it's Transport Day. It's the first week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So Transport next week with John McPherson and um, Meg. Wonderful. Thanks for teeing up Nick, and that was a uh, that was my pleasure. Thanks yeah, for everybody. Week. Yeah, yeah. Thanks see so you all next week.